Amos chapter 6, verse number 1, and it reads as follows. Woe unto them that are eased at Zion, and trust in the mountain of Samaria, which are named chief of the nations, to whom the house of Israel came. Pass ye unto Calna, and see from thence go ye unto Hamath the Great. Then go to Gath of the Philistines, be they better than these kingdoms? or their border greater than your border, ye that put far away the evil day and cause the seed of violence to come near, that lie upon beds of ivory and stretch themselves upon their couches and eat the lambs out of the flock and calves out of the midst of the stall, that chant to the sound of the viol and invent themselves the instruments of music like David, that drink wine in bowls and anoint themselves the chief ointments, but they are not grieved for the affliction of Joseph. Therefore now they shall go captive with the first that go captive, and the banquet of them that stretch themselves shall be removed. The Lord God hath sworn by himself, saith the Lord God of hosts, I abhor the excellency of Jacob, hate and hate his palaces. Therefore I will deliver the city with all that is therein. And it shall come to pass, if there remain ten men in one house, that they shall die, and a man's uncle shall take him up, and he that burneth him to bring out the bones out of the house and shall say unto them that is by the sides of the house, is there yet any with thee? And he shall say, no. Then shall he say, hold thy tongue, for we may not make mention of the name of the Lord. For behold, the Lord commandeth, and he will smite the great house with breeches and the little house with clefts. Shall horses run upon the rock? Will one plow there with oxen? For ye have turned judgment into gall, and the fruit of righteousness into hemlock. Ye which rejoice in thinking of naught, which say, Have we not taken us horns by our own strength? But behold, I will raise up against you a nation, O house of Israel, saith the Lord, the God of hosts, that they shall afflict you from entering in of Hemeth unto the river of the wilderness. Let's pray before we talk about these verses today. Dear God, thank you for your word, the Bible, that we have it to study and learn from. Be with all the Sunday schools going on right now, that this church will be dedicated to hearing your word, learning your word, knowing your word, making your word a part of our life. And pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Continue now with our study of the book of Amos. If you remember, our big picture, our big picture overall summary of this book can be summed up in one word, and that one word is judgment. Judgment, right? So you've learned nothing else. You learn that the book of Amos is all about judgment, right? And the past few months, we've been studying chapters 3, 4, 5, 6. 3, 4, 5, 6. Oh, 6 today, right? There are three different discussions, speeches. I don't know what you want to call it. But three different sections talking about different aspects when it comes to judgment. Judgment upon Israel and Judah. Most recently, we've been looking at this combination, 5 and 6. 5 and 6. Now, we know that... There's our, that we have these little starting points because we get this repeated start. It says, hear ye this word, right? Chapter 3 was hear ye this word. Chapter 4, the same. Chapter 5, the same. And 5 or 6 are kind of together. They're part of the same thing, even though they're separated in different chapters. But it all flows together. So hear ye this word. When we did chapter 5, start off talking about Israel again, what they were doing, what they should have been doing, and what they weren't doing right. And I talked about what they were seeking, right? Right? We were talking about seek God and you shall live, right? Seek good and not evil. But instead, they sought after the wrong things, the wrong way of doing things. And we went through in detail uh, 
what was going wrong with Israel, right? In general, if we had to do the, the, the five-cent summary, it would be that they were again, and this is a repeated theme in the book of Amos, they were again focused on their own self-centered needs, not caring about justice, not caring about fairness or the poor or anything else, only caring about how do I get what's mine, how do I make my life better, right? This kind of self-centered, greedy attitude, which is the wrong attitude, which led to, what else? Judgment, judgment. Last time, we talked about some of the judgment that was coming. At the end of chapter five, there was a whole laundry list of stuff that's bad stuff coming. In short, we know that Israel was gonna be conquered, right? To go into captivity. And as part of before then, when we get to that point where, oh, here's what the judgment is, there was something interesting we looked at last time, which is that actually there would be many people in Israel that actually would say, we desire the day of the Lord. We desire this judgment. Bring it on, right? Why is that? Because these people had the wrong and mistaken idea that they're already okay, right? They didn't fear God's judgment because they thought, hey, we're in good shape already, right? I'm not doing anything wrong, right? And so they've thought, oh, if judgment comes, it's gonna be to that guy or that guy over there, not me. But what they didn't realize was that they themselves were not following what God wanted of them and that they themselves would be the subject of judgment. That's why uh, God had something to say for them about, about that in the previous chapter. And we talked about how that, you know, was kind of still true today, that there's many people who might think in their heart, sure, I don't mind God's judgment because I'm God's child already, right? But they aren't actually, right? They might say that outwardly, but inwardly they aren't. And that's why I spent a lot of time and the other messages, right, focusing a little bit about the fundamentals of the faith, a little bit of reminder, because there are some people that even though they might sit in church, right, that might grow up and say, oh, my parents are Christians or whatever, they might not have any understanding or any belief whatsoever, any faith whatsoever that makes them a Christian, right? It's not as common around here. I guess in San Francisco, it's much more rare to be, you know, coming from that kind of background of, you know, kind of like a cultural Christian background. But we see it a lot in like other places in the country where it's just like going to, going to church and so-called being a Christian is just part of, you know, what everyone does. So everyone goes to church on Sunday, so I'll show up, you know, because my mom told me to show up or my dad told me to show up. I show up on Christmas and Easter or whatever. But during the non-church time, I do whatever I want. I live how I want. I do what I want. I'm no different than these people in Israel, right? I live the self-centered life. And those people have never had true repentance, never had true salvation, never needed to turn to Jesus and said, Jesus, I'm a sinner. I'm doing wrong. I need to turn to you to save me from my sin. And so a whole, you know, it would be to God that no one here is in that boat, right? That you're not just sitting here because someone told you to or you felt like that's the right thing. You're here because you have that faith, that faith in God, that you are God's child and you love God and you're here for that reason, the right reason, not for, you know, the incorrect reasons, right? And that we all 
don't fall in that same trap to say, oh, you know, I don't care about judgment. I'm already part of God when you don't even know what that means. No, 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 no. We're going to make sure we know what that means and believe in God the right way, his way, right? So chapter 6 is a continuation. And you'll see that a lot of stuff links up with chapter 5 and similar type of discussions that go on here. But we'll run through it really quickly today and what time we have left. It says, uh, chapter 6, verse 1, Woe! Woe is to them, right? So this is again saying what is, uh, what's bad going on in Israel, in Zion, right? It says, Woe to them that are at ease in Zion, that trust in the mountain of Samaria, right? The idea that there's some people, again, relaxing in Israel, and what do they put their trust in? They put their trust in the mountain of Samaria, right? They're putting their trust in worldly stuff, right? Stuff of the world. Not, they put their trust in heaven and put their trust in God. No, they're putting their trust in something here on earth. We'll put a little bit more about that later on, but uh, let's go on. Verse 2. He says, do you guys want to do that? You want to talk about the great mountain of Samaria? Look at this. Look at these other countries, right? If you go to Hamath or Gath of the Philistines, these different areas, right? What is uh, the question here, the rhetorical question? Are you better than these kingdoms? Is their border greater than your border, right? If you're putting your faith into earthly stuff, and like, oh, we're this great country. We got this great mountain or whatever in this land. There's always going to be some other country with more lands, bigger stuff or whatever. That's not a great thing to put your faith into, right? Those things are not the eternal thing. It's not a godly thing. It is an earthly thing. When they do that, verse 3, it says, what are you doing? They are putting far away that evil day and causing the seat of violence to come near, right? By focusing on those things, they're causing judgment to come upon the country, causing the seed of violence to come. Again, we read about in the previous chapter, the eventual conquering of Israel. Verse 4, what do these people do? They lie upon beds of ivory, stretch out on their couches, eat lambs, right? Verse 5, listen to music while doing that. Verse 6, drinking wine and anointing themselves, right? This is the image that God gives us of what these people are like. You know, a pretty good image that gives you a good feel, right? You can imagine these people, you know, just like, thousands of years ago, these rich people lying on this ivory bed. You know, ivory is, even today, considered a rare thing, right? This ivory bed, sitting back, music, wine, relaxing. There's your stereotypical rich guy of, a thousand, of 2,000 years ago, right? 2,000 plus years ago. The stereotypical rich guy living that life of ease, relaxed, not worried about anything. You know, I'm just sitting back, enjoying life. But what does God say about these people in verse 6? While they're doing that, they are not grieved for the affliction of Joseph. They don't care about anything else. They don't care about the rest of their country or the other people in their country. Do not care one bit. Why not? They're living up the life. They've got the relaxed life lying on their rich man bed. But what does God say? Verse 7. Verse 7. These people, they shall go with the first to go captive. These people, the ones that are living it up, relaxing, that rich life, they're going to be the first when the conquering comes, right? They're going to be the ones that are conquered and put into captivity. 
And we read in the rest of this chapter a lot of the uh, descriptions of the, uh, the judgment, coming judgment of God, right? About how the country will be conquered and taken up and people will die and all that kind of stuff, summed up in verse number 14, right? Or it says, I will raise up against you a nation, O Israel, right? There's an enemy nation that's going to come and conquer all you guys and all that stuff in verses uh, 7 to 13. It's going to happen to you guys. So I want to focus in a little bit on the description of the wrongdoer, right? The one that's going to be first into captivity today, right? Again, what does it say about this guy? It says in verse 1, it says this is the one that lives the life of ease, right? The rich guy living the good life. That's the one that's susceptible, that's doing the wrong thing, that's going to get the judgment. Now, we know today that there's some people out there that live the life of ease, right? And if we're being honest with ourselves, I'm sure all of us have thought once or twice in our life saying, boy, I wish I could be like that guy that's living the life of ease, the millionaire, the billionaire, right? You don't have to worry about anything. If you are, you know, Bill Gates or whoever, or Jeff Bezos or, you know, all these other rich people, you don't need to think about it. You don't need to work anymore. You could retire today and not lift a finger for the rest of your life and you would still have your billion dollars in the bank, right? Look at Bill Gates. He's like, give, give, he's giving away money left and right to whatever charity he wants or this thing or that thing. He doesn't care about anything anymore, right? He's that rich. And, you know, we look at that, and many people, worldly people, would say, that's the dream, right? If only I won the lotto, that'd be my life, right? If only I hit the stock market jackpot, that'd be my life, right? Or whatever, something like that. That's the stereotype, right? Oh. But what do we know about these people? And let's look at the real life examples. People like Bill Gates or Mark Zuckerberg or whoever else you can think about. These people are very famous for being rich and famous and all this stuff. And maybe even philanthropic or whatever. But what are these guys not famous for? You never hear any stories of these guys being famous for being great Christians, right? You never hear any stories about these people being servants of God. You never hear any stories of these people getting people saved or anything like that. It's because I think, based on what I know and what I hear about in the news and all this stuff, that none of these guys, as rich as they are, have anything to do with God in their life. That that's not the life they've chosen, right? That they're not religious people. And they're, that's not the way they are, right? So while they live the life of ease, similarly to the people of Israel back then, they miss out on the big picture. The big picture is God and God's judgment. Because when God's judgment comes, he doesn't care. Oh, you have a billion dollars that gets you into heaven. It doesn't work that way. You don't buy yourself into heaven with a billion dollars. No, no, no. Oh, Bill Gates, you've given a billion dollars to charity and you stopped malaria in Africa. Does that get you into heaven? No. That's not the way God's judgment works. He doesn't look at how many times you've donated to uh, the mosquito nets or whatever, Bill Gates, or you're Mark Zuckerberg, you donated so much money, they named the whole general hospital in San Francisco after you. That's not the measure. They are just sinners 
just like you, me, and everyone else, just like all the people of Israel back then. They're sinners. They need repentance. They need Jesus. You lose sight of that when you live the easy life. You know, actually, it's when you live the hard life, you realize how much we need Jesus and need Jesus to help us in all things and need Jesus to guide us in our lives. Sometimes we're thankful that we're not living the rich people life, that we don't have to worry about anything, that we can forget about God. It's easy to say when you say, hey, I've got a billion dollars. I did it all by myself. I didn't need God to help me get a billion dollars. I invented whatever it is, Facebook or Windows or whatever, right? And that's why me, I did it. Who needs God? I did it all. That's why I'm living the great life now, the life of ease. But that's not, that's not, that's not God's standard for his judgment. His judgment is based on his rule. This is the same mistake Israel fell into, right? They thought, we read in chapter 5, that we were doing great. Hey, we're living it up. Bring on the judgment. I think I'm going to be okay. But they were wrong. They were so, so wrong. Because we have to follow God's way to avoid God's judgment, not make up our own thing. So it's when we don't live the life of ease, actually, that we kind of figure some things out sometimes. You know, I met this uh, person just a couple weeks ago. She was telling me about her life a little bit and her experience as a Christian. And she told me about how it was that she really learned how to pray. And she said that was really when she was in college. And I thought this was interesting because she like, grew up in a Christian household and stuff like that. She'd been a Christian for many years. But she said, oh, I didn't really learn how to pray until I was in college. And why is that? Why is that? So she told me a story about the one day that changed her life as a Christian. Because before, she was just a regular person, just like everyone else, going to school, high school, college, whatever, right? She went to, uh, to, while she was in college, there was one day that her dad was just walking around the street at night. And while he, he was walking around the street at night, uh, he was crossing the street and some car ran him over. Like, totally ran him over. And not just like a little bit over where he had to go to the hospital and had broken bones or whatever. Like, seriously ran over, as in not just go to the hospital for a week or a day or a month, but, you know, like, literally could not take care of himself for years. That level of being run over by a car, right? So she told me this. She said, you know, Norman, after that day, I was so, like, shook up when I heard that news. I was, like, so crying or whatever. And that's when I really learned about what real prayer is. Starting that day, when I had to pray to God about this, when I was praying for my father, true prayer, on my knees prayer, on the ground with my face to the ground, begging and pleading with God, that type of prayer, that kind of feeling that, ah, God, I need you. I have to have you. It was from that hard life, not the life of ease, not the easy life, that she got that lesson and that she knew she had, this is what prayer is like and this is what a relationship with God is like and that informed her whole life after that. And I thought about that. It's kind of the same thing in my life, right? When did I really focus on prayer in my life? It wasn't when I was in school living it up and getting 4.0s and breezing through. It was when I finally hit the hard points in my life. When I was getting Ds and Fs and stuff, I finally realized that, oh, all that stuff that Nathan and Melvin are saying about praying for your tests, maybe I need to do that because, hey, you know, when you're getting Ds and Fs, it suddenly makes a lot more sense, right? It didn't make sense to say, let's pray for your tests when you're getting A's, straight A's all the time. 
right? It's when you feel that adversity, you get the idea, oh, this is what God wants. This is my relationship with God. It's the same thing with the Bible, isn't it, for us? We don't think about reading the Bible a lot of times because we have the Bible so easily. Who are the people in the world that care the most about the Bible, that love the Bible, that, that just eat it all up? It's those places that don't have the Bible. We hear Melvin share about some of these places where they need Bible smuggling to get the Bible in. Places like China, right? Places all over where it's so hard to have the Bible and you hear these stories about people, you know, uh, we're just like so venerating the Bible, making sure the Bible is kept in a safe place in their house, making sure they have time to look at it every day because they don't have it compared to you and me where, you know, you go to my house, you'll probably see the Bible on the floor somewhere or whatever, or, you know, you know, oh, is this the Bible, right? Just seems like this any other book almost, right? For many people, maybe that's where we treat it. We don't venerate it as the Bible because it's so easy. You can get the Bible in the book at your house. You can look it on your phone, your computer, everywhere. The Bible's everywhere now. We don't have that, that struggle. And sometimes we lose sight of that. You know, so we need that struggle sometimes to push us forward in our Christian life. Look at the people we have examples in the Bible. People like Paul. Did he have the easy Christian life. You figure if anyone deserved the easy life, it was him. Look at all the people he got saved. Look at all the churches he started. But what do we read about when we read the book of Acts and read his epistles? We read about how he was stoned. We read about how he was imprisoned. We read about how he was shipwrecked. Folks, the Christian life isn't an easy life at all. And that's what these people in Israel weren't getting. They thought that their life, sitting on their ivory chairs, drinking some wine, relaxing, that's it, right? Clearly, God is uh, blessing me and I'm doing it all great. That's it. I'm doing it right. But that's wrong. God wants us to struggle and work hard and try and strive to live the Christ-like life to repent of our sins, to always be working forward. Folks, it's not easy to spread the gospel and get people saved. Like I said, look at Paul, all the struggles he had. Look at all the struggles we have here. It's not easy to do like a whole Chinese school, right? That's a whole, a whole uh, production. You gotta have teachers and books and papers and photocopies and witnesses. And it goes on for weeks and weeks and months and months and year round. And in the end, maybe only a handful of people get saved, right? Maybe out of all these 50 people we got, maybe, hopefully, more than half get saved, 40 get saved. I don't know. Some people get saved. It's a big production. It's not easy. It's hard. It's hard. When you get in the wrong attitude, you wind up like the people of Israel. You know, there's some people today that even fall in that same trap. It's these prosperity gospel folks. Have you heard about these people? The prosperity gospel people folks, the most famous one being Joel Osteen, if you heard of him, they take this attitude. How do you know you're saved? How do you know you're doing right by God? Well, clearly, you know that you're saved and you're doing right if God blessed you with lots and lots of money. Oh, you're a rich guy? Clearly, God has blessed you. And that, of course, is 100% wrong. It goes against everything it says in the Bible here. It goes against what we study right here. The Christian life isn't a life of ease. We shouldn't expect that when we get saved, oh, everything's easy now. We have struggles. We have trials. We get sick just like everyone else. We have financial problems just like everyone else. 
But you know what we have that other people don't have? We have a God that we can rely on to bring us through those trials, to guide us, and that in the end will lead us to that perfect life where we don't have to worry about money and sickness and health and all these other things when we get to heaven, right? That's when we get the reward. That's when God's judgment is complete and we get the answer. Let's pray and wrap up here before we go on to chapter 7 next time. Dear God, thank you for chapter 6, the last of this discussion. We see very clearly here that you don't speak highly of these people living a life of ease and thinking that they've done it all right just because they're rich and they can sit on their ivory chairs and whatever. No, no, no. We know that serving you is always going to be a struggle, something we need to work on, that we need to continue to strive to be closer and closer to you. Lord, help us do that. Help us on a daily basis. Not get too comfortable, too relaxed, and be like, oh, I'm going to be lazy. I don't care about God anymore. No, 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 no. To always be focused on you, to struggle, to strive for, to get closer and closer to you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.